O God of life and love, You are full of grace and truth. Your mercies are new each day. Your grace abounds even to the chief of sinners. You are the architect and builder of creation. You do all things well, and all you have made reveals your wisdom. You are the Savior from sin and death. When your servant Job was in the midst of trial and suffering, he asked, If a man dies, shall he live again? And, O Lord, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son, you have answered that question with a resounding yes. Yes, the dead shall live again. You raised your Son from the dead. And in union with Him, you will raise us from the dead as well. So we might be renewed in your service. So we might live to your glory and in your glory for all eternity. This is our destiny. We long for communion with you, O God. Take away all the sins that ensnare us and entangle us on our journey towards the new Jerusalem. And give us yourself and your gifts, even today, that we might know you, our God and Father, and the one you sent, your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the working of your Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, and who pours your love into our hearts We give you thanks and praise. We honor and adore you, the God of all mercies, the God of our salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak through your word the truth concerning your Son, that by the power of the Holy Spirit our eyes may be opened to behold his glory and in knowing him to know you as well. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If Christ did not rise from the grave, you are a fool to be at church this morning. But if he did rise from the grave, you're a fool not to be in church this morning. The Christian faith depends upon the facts of history. Indeed, this one fact of the resurrection. Other religions don't work that way. They don't depend on history in the same way. If Buddha never existed, you could still have Buddhism. You could still have the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, even if there never was a Buddha. But if Jesus did not live and die and, yes, rise again, then the whole Christian faith Collapses. The Christian faith is not primarily about following Christ's teachings, though that is part of it. It's really at its core, it's about what Christ did. It's about the facts of history, the facts of his life. It's about his resurrection from the dead. Everything hinges on this single fact of the resurrection. And so we have to ask, how do we know it happened? How do we know Christ rose from the grave? Oh, certainly we could say we simply take God's word for it. We can take the word of eyewitness testimony from those who saw the risen Christ and those who didn't take the word of those eyewitnesses are rebuked in the very passage we read in Mark 16 this morning. The Bible tells us that Christ is written. The Bible records eyewitness testimony, and that should be enough. We can accept it on God's own say-so in His Word, that Christ is risen. 
But it's interesting, I think, that the resurrection accounts that we have in Scripture, especially in the four Gospels and also especially in 1 Corinthians 15, these resurrection accounts in Scripture actually seem to invite close inspection. They invite scrutiny and even cross-examination. And this is because the bodily resurrection seems to go against everything we know about the world. Dead people don't rise. That's not an everyday occurrence. That would be an extremely unusual, yes, miraculous occurrence. And because the fate of the world hangs in the balance, whether or not Christ is risen from the dead, this becomes a matter of utmost importance. See, if you're going to make this kind of claim that a dead man came back to life, you're going to make that kind of radical claim, history-changing claim, you're going to need some proof. You're going to need to have some arguments. And there are all kinds of ways to argue for the fact of Jesus' resurrection. I want to, this morning, I like to do this every Easter season, do a little apologetics from the pulpit. I think it's helpful for us. I want to give you three arguments for the resurrection, following out of work that N.T. Wright has done, and especially Glenn Scrivener, three arguments for the bodily resurrection of Jesus. First, there is what you could call the heavens, the argument from the heavens. It is true at first glance, nothing seems more contrary to the kind of world we live in than resurrection. But if you think about it more deeply, if you reflect on this question more deeply, Actually, what happens on Easter morning makes perfect sense. It fits right in. The universe we live in must be a life-from-the-dead kind of universe. Quite honestly, if you don't believe in the Creator God who raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, you still have to believe in some kind of life-from-the-dead miracle. In fact, you have to believe in a series of such miracles. If you reject this worldview altogether and you go the secular route, what do you have to believe? What kind of miracles then do you have to commit yourself to? You've got to believe that the universe came into existence from nothing and for no reason. You have to believe the design we see in the universe all around us has no designer. That all the harmony we see in the world around us just happened by chance to spring out of the chaos. You have to believe that life spontaneously arose from non-life. You have to believe personality arose from the impersonal, that mind arose from mindless matter, that morality arose from the amoral, that meaning arose from meaninglessness. See, if you don't believe God raised Jesus from the dead, you actually have a series of far more challenging and indeed improbable miracles to explain. A, a series of miracles with no miracle worker. Without a creator, without a creating and resurrecting God standing behind the universe, you've got a lot of explaining to do. Christians have to explain the empty tomb, yes. But if you go the secular route, you've got a lot more explaining to do. You've got to explain all these wonders, all these miracles, all these leaps from nothing to something, from non-life to life, and so on. On the other hand, if God made the world and breathed life into his human image bearers and gave the world its design and purpose, then resurrection makes perfect sense. The resurrection of Jesus 
fits into the creation. It shows us creation's purpose and destiny. That creation came from God and it's returning to God. That it's His handiwork. And He's going to preserve it forever. He's going to redeem it, even from death. And indeed, resurrection is reflected in the world around us in all kinds of ways. Uh, Martin Luther once said, God has written the promise of resurrection not only in the gospel, but in every leaf at springtime. Every year the world goes through a kind of death and resurrection. We see this in nature all around us, this kind of death and resurrection pattern. God has built resurrection patterns and symbols and rhythms into his world to help us get the picture. God is a God of love. And he's writing a love story, the ultimate love story. History, the history of the world, is God's love story. And within that love story, Easter makes perfect sense. Because this God of love is not going to let death win. Again, we live in a life from the dead kind of universe because we have a life from the dead kind of God. The heavens and all His handiwork show us this. The resurrection fits right in. It, at first glance, seems to be very different from what we know about the world, but when you really reflect on it, it actually fits right in to what we know about the world. Second line of arguments. History. Jesus was put to death around 30 A.D. by the decree of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Virtually all historians uh, agree on that. We've even got extra-biblical historians from the era who tell us that this Jesus Christ uh, was put to death by Pontius Pilate. All historians also agree that by 330 A.D., the followers of Jesus had, for all practical purposes, converted and transformed that very same Roman Empire that had put Jesus to death. And so, within 300 years or so, the church became the most powerful force for social good and transformation the world has ever known. The church became the most diverse and transformative social institution in history. There's never been anything else like the church. There's nothing quite like the church in the history of the world. The question is, how did it happen? Everybody knows that it did. The question is how. How did the church go from basically being two or three women on Easter morning, filled with fear, as Mark tells us, how did the church go from that to being such a big and powerful entity? Specifically, how did the church survive Jesus' death? Uh, folks don't always know this, but actually there were a lot of other Jewish figures who claimed to be the Messiah in the years before Jesus and after Jesus. And when the Romans got wind of it, they always did the same thing to these messianic claimants, these messianic pretenders. Every single one of them got put to death. They would claim to be Messiah and then would get executed. And whatever kind of movement they had formed around themselves would not survive the founder's death. Why was this different? How did the Christian movement survive its founder's death? How do you explain that? How did Jesus himself become the most central figure in all of history? How did his followers become the most important movement in all of history? What kind of cause could have that kind of effect? Especially when you consider that their message was all about resurrection, the message of the early Christians. And it would have been very easy to disprove that message if it were false. 
And so just consider this, 50 days after the resurrection on Pentecost, the day known as Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon in downtown Jerusalem, a very short distance, just a few minutes walk from the very place where Jesus had been crucified and then where his body had been buried. And on that day, a mere 50 days after Easter, 3,000 people believed Peter's resurrection message. If it were false, all someone had to do was produce the body of Jesus and it would have been game over for Peter and for the church. But no one could do it. The tomb was empty. It was a public fact. The tomb was empty. Indeed, hundreds had claimed to have seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. He appeared to his disciples. He even appeared at one time to a group of 500 disciples. There was simply no way to stop the spread of the church because its message was true. Its message had credibility. There was compelling eyewitness testimony that this man who had been crucified had now been raised. If the church is the effect, what must be the cause, the only possible cause, is Jesus' resurrection. In a sense, you could say, <coughs> excuse me, you could say that the existence of the church is the ultimate proof of Easter. The disciples were so sure of it, they were willing to die for it. Oh, but someone says lots of people are willing to die for a lie. You see it with suicide bombers. They believe something, they believe it so firmly they'll die for it, but we know it's not true. Yeah, that's true, but the suicide bomber thinks that it's true, and that's why he's willing to die for it. What you would have to say with the early Christians is that they were willing to die for something that they knew was false that they knew was a falsehood and they were still willing to die anyway. Something that would give them no earthly gain whatsoever. And indeed would cost them everything, but they were still willing to die. Virtually all of Jesus' original apostles died martyrs' deaths. Why were they willing to suffer for this? Unless it was true. Something extraordinary had to have happened on that Easter Sunday to make these fearful, scattered disciples suddenly so bold and confident Confident enough that they were willing to risk their very lives for the message they proclaimed. If you try to explain why early Christianity took the shape it did, the only hypothesis that really fits, the only convincing explanation is that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that he actually rose on the third day. Let me give you an analogy. Imagine someone who denies that George Washington ever existed. If there was no Washington, how could you explain the existence of America? Someone had to lead those troops into battle with the British. Someone had to cross the Delaware. There are eyewitness accounts, a multitude of eyewitness accounts of Washington's life and work. There's no other plausible explanation. Washington must have existed and done the work the historians ascribe to him. And so it is with Jesus. He must be raised from the dead. There's no other way to account for the facts of history, for the behavior of the early disciples, for the growth of the church. Here's another example. There are people, there's kind of a little cottage industry now, people who are Holocaust deniers. Okay? The problem with that is that you've still got people alive to this day who've got the tattoos they received in the concentration camps. You've still got people alive, and of course a multitude of eyewitness accounts of people who went into those concentration camps and saw it with their own eyes. You just can't deny it. 
And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus. It is a fact of history as secure as any other fact we know from history. So you have the heavens above us. You have the history around us. Finally, we have our hearts within us. All of human life is a struggle between two forces, two forces continually fighting in our own hearts, the forces of love and death. And the question of human life is which is stronger. That's the question of our hearts. Which will win? Which wins, love or death? We all know tragic stories of doomed love, stories where death seems to defeat love are well-known, stories like Romeo and Juliet. But stories like that don't quench our desire for a love that somehow conquers and overcomes death. I mean, every love song in pop culture expresses a desire for a love that goes on forever. You know, I love you forever and ever and ever. That's a constant refrain in, in, in pop culture's love songs. A love that somehow transcends death. A love that is, yes, eternal. A love that's stronger than death. If these are the two strongest forces in our lives, the two strongest forces in our hearts, love and death, which is stronger? Which is the ultimate force in the universe? Which is the deepest reality? It's really at the heart of the whole universe. Well, the Song of Solomon tells us there is a love stronger than death. And if so, there must be a resurrection. The only way love can win is if there is a resurrection. A resurrection love that goes through death and comes out the other side alive again. A love that can take tragedy and turn it into comedy. A love that turns loss into gain. That kind of love. Does that kind of love exist? Well, the reality is there is no satisfying account of human life in which love is defeated by death. We were made for just this kind of love, a love that conquers all, a love that overcomes death, a love that knows its way out of the grave. Indeed, I would say even those who deny the resurrection on whatever grounds, you know, maybe they're not convinced of the evidence or maybe they don't have to give their life over to Jesus because if he rose, they know he's Lord. Even those who deny the resurrection on whatever grounds they may do so, do not live consistent with that denial. They still live in all kinds of ways as if resurrection were true. They still love. They still crave love. They still long for love. They still write songs and poems about love. They live as if love is ultimate. Yes, again, people in our secular society may say otherwise, but no one lives as if love could be reduced to chemicals in the brain. Some people may profess nihilism, but no one lives consistent with it. Intuitively and experientially, we believe relationships are good, that people are more important than things, that love is a real bond with real meaning. Indeed, people somehow believe the story of life is going to have a happy ending, or at least they know they want it to have a happy ending. They crave this forever love, this resurrection love. Now, just because you want something to be true doesn't mean that it is true, and that's why I've given you these other kinds of evidences and arguments too. But having a worldview that is existentially satisfying, living by a story that satisfies your deepest intuitions and that satisfies your deepest longings and cravings is really, really important as well. And there's only one way to make sense of these institutions, these these intuitions, these cravings that we have. The resurrection grounds all these intuitions. 
The resurrection makes sense of our desires. It satisfies our cravings. Indeed, without resurrection, life becomes unlivable. C.S. Lewis once said, If I cannot find anything in this world that satisfies, it must mean I was made for another world. How could we have a desire that is unsatisfiable? Lewis gives all these examples. We have a desire for thirst, and there's such a thing as water to quench that thirst. We have a hunger desire, and there's such a thing as food to satisfy that desire. What do we ultimately crave? A love that lasts forever. What kind of world were we made for? If we can't find anything that fully satisfies us in this world, because death always steals it away from us, what kind of world were we made for? We must have been made for a resurrection world. A world in which love wins out over death. In our hearts and our minds, we know it must be true. And indeed, we cannot cope with life, with all its suffering and trial. We cannot cope with life unless Easter is true, unless light triumphs over darkness, unless love triumphs over hate, unless life triumphs over death. Our hearts demand it. Our hearts demand it. Woody Allen, certainly no Christian uh, in any sense, was once asked the question in old age, he was asked, Aren't you pleased to know that you'll live on in the minds and hearts of your fans? And Alan said, I don't want to live on in minds and hearts. I want to live on in my apartment. What Alan wanted was resurrection. He craved a love that would last, a love that could triumph over death. He wanted to know light will triumph over darkness. Life will triumph over death. Love will triumph over hate. That's what he craved. That's what you get in the message of Easter. So you have the heavens, the history, and our hearts. They all point in the same direction. They all point towards Easter. The resurrection of Jesus is not an absurdity. It's what keeps the world from becoming an absurdity. It's what keeps life from sinking into absurdity. Those are really your only two choices, Christ or chaos. The risen Christ or the chaos of death. Those are really your only two alternatives. The resurrection has immense explanatory power. It is the ultimate clue to the meaning of everything. What Mark does for us in the ending of his gospel is he shows us the truth of the resurrection, especially in this long ending of Mark's gospel, a sort of second ending that Mark gives us in his gospel, verses 9 through 20. Mark shows us the resurrection. He doesn't really seek to prove it. It's just there as a brute fact on the page. But it's not a fact that we're free to do with whatever we want. Mark shows us the meaning of this fact as well. And especially in this long ending, he focuses our attention on the implications of the resurrection for Jesus and for the church and for the world. And that's really what I want us to to turn our attention to now. What does Mark's gospel show us about the implications of the resurrection? If this is a fact, what does it mean? This is a fact that jumps off the page. What does it mean for us? How should it restructure and reshape our lives? Well, in this account that Mark gives us, Jesus appears to his disciples. And in verses 15 to 18, he gives them what we usually call the Great Commission. This is the Great Commission in Mark and form. Every gospel has this. They're all a little bit different. 
This overlaps with some of the other Gospels. There's also some unique things here. Jesus commands His disciples to go. To go into all the world, that is all the cosmos, and to preach the Gospel to every creature. Or to preach the Gospel to the whole creation. The church is called to fill the cosmos with the good news. To fill the whole cosmos with the Gospel. We're to take it to every nation, on the face of the earth, we, we probably ought to go colonize outer space just so we can preach the gospel there too. We're to fill the whole cosmos with this message of Christ's resurrection. Jesus says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus gives his followers the sign of baptism. This is what will mark out his disciples, his church. The church will be surrounded by a watery moat, as it were, Baptism And to enter into the church, you have to cross that, that water. You have to pass through water into the church. He links baptism and belief here. Baptism and belief go together. They fit together. But it's important to understand how. It is not as if baptism is a human work done in addition to faith. That much should be obvious. Think about the baptism we witnessed this morning. Did Maggie Rose do any work in her baptism? This morning, no, obviously not. Now, all she, all she brought to her baptism was a cry. She did not do the work. So who does the work in baptism? Whose work is baptism? Scripture is clear again and again. Baptism is God's work. Baptism, by definition, is water plus the working of God's Spirit. Water plus Spirit. Water through which God's Spirit works to offer and to give us Christ. And so then what does faith do in baptism? What is faith's role? Faith receives what God offers and gives in the waters of baptism. God is active in baptism. Faith is receptive. That's how baptism and faith fit together. God acts in baptism. Faith receives what God is doing. Now this does not mean, what Jesus says here, this does not mean that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. And that's why I think you see the asymmetry when he talks about condemnation. He leaves baptism out of it. Baptism is not absolutely necessary for salvation, but it is, we can say, ordinarily necessary for salvation. Because in baptism, God publicly unites us to Christ. In baptism, God joins us to the church, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Usually when God saves a person, He does it by bringing them into the church. Baptism is the doorway. It's the gateway in. An unbaptized Christian is a contradiction, or at least a real oddity. It seems to me that's a contradiction in terms. Baptism, like preaching, is one of the normal means God uses to bring us to salvation. That's just the teaching of our... Westminster Shorter Catechism in the Presbyterian Church. It's what the church has essentially always believed in one form or another, that God uses the outward means of preaching and baptism and the supper to bring us to salvation. These are the instruments God uses. Jesus then goes on to describe the signs that will accompany the apostles as they carry out their mission. Signs that will follow those who believe. And if you look at the rest of the New Testament, you see that these signs are there. They do indeed happen. And you see that these signs are especially associated with the apostles. 
These signs are especially associated with the, the apostles and their special ministry from 30 A.D. when the Holy Spirit was poured out until 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. What we call the apostolic era from 30 to 70 A.D. That's when these signs were especially operative. They fit within that framework of time when God was still giving his church new revelation and that new revelation needed confirmation in the form of these signs. It was a transitional time for the church from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And the signs confirmed the new revelation God was delivering to his people through the apostles. That's why Mark 16, 20, uh, the very end of this chapter, says that as they went out preaching, these signs accompanied the word. The signs went with the word to confirm the word. Just a few passages that, that show us this, the connection of these special signs with the apostles and their unique ministry. Hebrews 2 says that God bore witness to the word of the apostles with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. You've got the word of the apostles, this new revelation confirmed by the miraculous signs. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes the signs of a true apostle. These signs that belong uniquely to the apostles, he describes them as wonders and mighty works. Just the kind of thing Mark lists here. In Romans 15, Paul is describing his unique foundation-laying ministry. As an apostle, he wants to go where no other apostle has gone before, to take the gospel to new frontiers. And Paul describes his own apostolic ministry in a way that includes the power of signs and wonders. You're going to take the gospel where it's never been before. You've got this new revelation. God gives signs and wonders to confirm the word. Now, it's not impossible for these signs to happen in the church today. I'm not saying that. But I am saying they're not a regular part of the church's ministry as they once were, as they were in that transitional apostolic era. There's nothing that indicates these miracles will be a part of the life of the church in all times and places. And indeed, there's much that suggests the contrary. Baptism would be a sign that is for the church of all ages. It's a sign that marks out the church, that identifies the church. These other signs are different. They function in a different way to confirm this new revelation the apostles are delivering. But even so, even if we say these are not as much of a normal part of the church's ministry today, we can still learn a great deal about God's purposes and God's mission for the church by looking at these signs. Virtually all these signs are recorded in the book of Acts as the book of Acts traces the spread of the gospel through the apostles as they lay the foundation on which the church of future generations will be built. So the first sign we have here is casting out demons. The demonic is real. Uh, the demonic is real. Jesus did battle with Satan. Jesus performed exorcisms. His apostles will continue that spiritual warfare. The ministry of the church includes delivering people from demonic oppression and bondage and possession. Satan can still tempt us. He can still attack us. The apostle Peter says he prowls around like a lion looking for whom he might devour. But these exorcisms, this casting out of demons, proves to us that Satan's dominion has been broken. Once and for all on the cross, Jesus broke the dominion of Satan. By rising from the dead, Jesus broke the dominion of Satan. Satan does not have a death grip on the nations that he once did. Revelation talks about Satan being bound so he can no longer deceive the nations. 
And that's part of the, 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 the impetus, the motivation for taking the gospel to the nations. Christ wants to claim the nations as his own inheritance. Satan can't stop us from doing that. Another sign given here, speaking with new tongues. Uh, the gift of tongues is a major focus in the New Testament, especially in Acts and in 1 Corinthians. And tongues really function as a twofold sign, a sign of curse and a sign of blessing. Tongues were assigned to unbelieving Jews, those Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah, that they were being judged, that all the curses of the covenant would fall upon them. Through tongues, it's as if God says to the Jewish people who won't believe in Christ, look, you won't believe my message when I send it to you in your own tongue in Hebrew, and so now I'm going to speak in different languages you cannot understand. Indeed, the whole New Testament is written in a tongue from the Jewish perspective. It's written in Greek rather than in Hebrew. And, of course, that judgment on Israel came to pass in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem fell. The Jews are not under any kind of special judgment today, no more than any other nation. They're not any different than any other people group. But in 70 A.D., that judgment fell on God's old covenant people who had rejected the Messiah, who were clinging to the old temple rather than entering the new temple of the church. And tongues were a sign of that, a sign of that impending judgment on Israel. But tongues also signified blessing, the blessing of the reversal of Babel, the blessing of God's word going out to the Gentiles, out to the nations. At Babel, what did God do back in the book of Genesis? God judged a rebellious people who would not follow his command to spread out, to scatter, to fill the earth. And so God came to them at Babel and he fractured the human race. He scattered the people. He confused them by giving them different languages. The different languages led to division within the human race. But now, the, the sign of tongues will function differently. It will show us that God has gone global with his blessing, with the blessing of the gospel and the spirit. The, the, the gift of tongues is a sign that God wants to include all the families of the earth in the family of Abraham. He is reversing the curse of Babel and now uniting the many different people groups of the world into his one church. He's healing and gathering humanity into one diverse covenant family. That's what the gift of tongues means. That God's salvation is for the nations. It's for every people, tribe, tongue, and language. Of course, in missionary efforts by the apostles, the gift of tongues was a great help since it allowed them to preach the gospel miraculously to new people groups. They could reach new people groups with the gospel right away without having to study and learn a language. Today, we don't have the gift of tongues in, a, in that same kind of operative way. You know, that miracle really came in handy on the mission field. Today, we've got to have translators who learn a language, and it takes a lot longer and that kind of thing. But the gift of tongues even stands behind that work of Bible translation. This is one of the reasons why the Reformers believe that the Bible should be translated into the language of the people. Because the gift of tongues shows us God wants to speak his truth to every people group, no matter what language they speak. It's not just for people who speak Hebrew or Latin. It's for all the world. Another sign, they will take up serpents. Of course, the serpent was Satan's instrument in the Garden of Eden used to lead the first woman astray. There at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent had the audacity to question God's word. And of course, later in that same passage in Genesis 3, 
Genesis 3.15, God gives the first gospel promise in Scripture, and it is described in terms of victory over the serpent, crushing the serpent's head. That's the gospel in its first form. Crushing the serpent's head, destroying Satan. And so the symbolism here of the serpent is clear. Serpents in Scripture are Satan figures. And so, for example, when Moses goes to Pharaoh's court, he does signs to show Pharaoh that when God says, let my people go, he means business. And Moses would cast his staff down and it would turn into a snake. And then he would grab it by the tail and it would turn into a staff again. And Moses' serpent that he miraculously is able to conjure up is greater than the serpents of the Egyptians. It's a sign that shows what's going to happen, that Pharaoh will be defeated, that God's, God and his people will have power over the serpent. And of course, those kinds of signs led to the exodus of Israel out of slavery. That's the sign here as well. The fact that God's people, the apostles, will have authority over snakes is a sign of a new exodus, an exodus now for all the nations. Again, it's a sign of Satan's defeat. And of course, this is exactly what we see unfold in the book of Acts. In fact, we've got a very interesting story in Acts 27 and 28. Paul is a prisoner, uh, a Roman prisoner. He's being taken to Rome to stand before Caesar. Uh, he gets shipwrecked, but he and the passengers are able to survive. They uh, float on debris to safety, and uh, they, they land on the island of Malta. And there they are received by the natives. And uh, once they're there, they're building a fire. And Paul goes out and gathers some sticks. And as he throws the sticks into the fire, a poisonous viper comes out of the sticks and latches onto his hand. And it just won't let go. And, and the locals, uh, they, the, you know, the natives, they think surely Paul must be a murderer. This, there's a kind of poetic justice in this. He should have died in the shipwreck, but he survived that, and so now he's going to be killed here. He must be a murderer or something, and this is the God's way of taking him out, of doing justice to him. But Paul's able to shake off the snake into the fire, and he goes on his way without any effects. And so then the natives change their mind, and they decide that Paul must be some sort of God himself. If he can survive a snake bite, if he's got that kind of power, power over serpents. Well, actually, what it really reveals is that Paul is God's messenger, and this is a sign confirming God's word and the victory of the gospel Paul preaches. God has won the victory over the wily serpent. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, the cross was at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And so the skull was under the feet of Jesus. He was crushing the serpent's head on the cross as he hung and died. And now Romans 16 says this is true of us as well. Because we are united to Jesus in his victory, God will crush Satan under our feet as well. That's the promise God makes to us, his people. We trample the poisonous viper underfoot. We have victory over Satan as well. Now I know there are modern snake handling churches in the Appalachians and elsewhere. I just read an article not too long ago about a, uh, one of these Christians who's into snake handling who got bit and died. Uh, unfortunately, so I'm, don't go hand, handling rattlesnakes or copperheads or anything like that. I don't think that's what this means. What you should do instead is rejoice in Christ's victory over Satan. And so show signs of that victory in your own life. You trample Satan underfoot every time you do the right thing. Every time you resist temptation, you're trampling Satan underfoot. Next sign. 
Jesus says if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. This is interesting because we don't have a record of this one in the, uh, in the book of Acts or elsewhere in the New Testament. It's the only one you can't find explicitly fulfilled. But even if we have no record of it, it certainly is the kind of thing that could have happened. It would fit with other things we see the apostles doing. Perhaps there were early Christians who drank poison and survived. But I think there's another dimension to this that is not just about drinking the hemlock and being able to survive that. What Jesus actually says, what he literally says is, if they drink death, it will by no means hurt them. If they drink death. And I think that actually opens us up to other possibilities. Drinking death could be a metaphor for martyrdom. In fact, we've already read about a cup, a kind of poisonous cup, if you will, uh, earlier in Mark's gospel, all the way back in Mark chapter 10, Jesus described his impending death as drinking a cup. He drank a cup of death. He drank death. And yes, he did die, but he rose again. And so in that sense, death did not hurt him. The cup of death, the cup of poison did not hurt him. But what's interesting in Mark 10, Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, you too will drink the cup that I drink. You will drink death too. You will drink the cup of poison as well. And if that's what it means, if drinking death is a sign of dying like Jesus did, then actually you do have a case of this in the book of Acts with Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who is the first Christian martyr. He's stoned to death, but as the account there as we find it, as he is being stoned to death, what does he see? Heaven opens. And he sees Jesus standing up, getting up off of his throne, standing up to welcome Stephen into heavenly glory. Stephen gets that vision of the Shekinah glory that every Jew longed to have. And so as Stephen drank death, we actually find death didn't hurt him at all. If anything, death was a gain for him. And that's what this sign means. The point, again, is not that you should go drinking cyanide or something else. The point is that not even death can stop the advance of Christ's kingdom. We can drink death and live because of Christ. We will live again. The last sign given here is healing. They will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. And certainly that is something that is recorded in the book of Acts. But it's important, again, to understand what these, this means. These healings are not just magic tricks done to show, yes, Jesus is alive and well. No, they are signposts that reveal God's purpose to heal the whole creation. The healings are signs and symbols of creation's renewal. They're signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. They're really resurrection signs. God putting the world to rights. There are signs that the kingdom is here now and God will ultimately put the whole world right. He will ultimately heal the whole world. And so these miraculous healings are not violations of the natural order. They are restorations of the natural order. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus is all about. Grace redeeming nature. Grace redeeming the creation. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not just a conjuring trick with bones. As one liberal clergyman once put it, in the resurrection, God the Father has begun His work of putting the world to rights. He's begun the work of, over, of overturning injustice and oppression. In the resurrection, God the Father reversed the verdict passed against His Son in the lower earthly court. 
In the resurrection, he has ruled in his son's favor and thus he has vindicated him. He has overturned that injustice with an act of justice. And in vindicating Jesus by raising him from the dead, God has revealed his ultimate purpose to rescue this creation and even these bodies. That's what these healing signs point to. The physicalness of our salvation. The hope that we have for the physical. It's really something that sets the Christian faith apart. No other religion offers this kind of this worldly redemption. A redemption for this world rather than from this world. These healings are signs that God cares for the physical. They're signs that our future glory will include the physical. They're signs that the mission and ministry of the church today must not only be for people's souls, but also for their bodies. We are also concerned with injustice, just like God the Father. We're concerned with bodies that are broken and hurting. We're concerned with poverty and disease. In all these ways, we manifest the resurrection grace of Christ. The mission and the ministry of the church is empowered not just by remembering the past. We've also got to remember the future. Remember the future God has promised. Remember what God has promised to do in the future. That empowers our ministry as well. Verse 19 then finally describes Jesus' ascension. We will talk about this when we get to Ascension Day, uh, or, or perhaps I'll say something about it at, at another, uh, on another occasion. But it's interesting that Mark rounds out his account by giving you the Ascension. And Mark wants you to see it's all of this that really undergirds our mission. Mark ends his gospel this way. It's, it's kind of his grand finale. He gives us this note in verse 20 about the church's missionary work. These apostles going out, preaching everywhere, just as Jesus commanded. And the Lord working with them. The Lord making them His co-workers. Working through their work. Speaking through their speech. So their message is effective to convert sinners to faith in Christ and to advance the kingdom of the risen Christ. And of course it says too, the Lord confirmed their word through the accompanying signs. It was a ministry of both word and deed. Their hope is our hope as well. That the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord is with us to work in us and through us to advance His kingdom, to renew the world, to transform the culture. So whatever our situation is, whether we're out there on the front lines fighting for Jesus, winning battles, or if we feel like our backs are to the wall and we're powerless, we're weak in the face of what the culture is doing all around us, we know. This Lord is with us. The risen Lord is with us. He's working with us. He's working through us. He is accomplishing His purposes, His kingdom purposes. And that's what counts. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that just as You reached into the dirt to form the first Adam, so You reached into the grave to recreate the second Adam. This is a sign that you are recreating the whole cosmos. Christ Jesus is now the head of a new humanity, the beginning, the origin point of a new creation. May we as your new creation people manifest signs of new creation in our lives by our work, by our words. Would you empower our ministry and our mission that we might go forth from here this day and every day to carry forward the gifts and the blessings of Christ's kingdom, that we might spread resurrection life and resurrection grace all around. We thank you for the truth of the resurrection, for this great historical fact. 
We thank you for its meaning, its purpose, how it gives significance to our lives, even every detail of our lives. This we pray, giving you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.